Welcome everyone to Greencast. This is a podcast that brings practicality to being sustainable. Presented to you by the Waukesha County Green Team. Your hosts are myself, Alec Lapoitevin. And me, Laura Lauks. Hi everybody, welcome to Greencast. Thanks for joining us again today. So I'm really excited about this conversation. I sat down with my friend Melissa Vernon and we talked about carbon credits. So starting with what is carbon, what is a credit, and how those kind of all work in the world. And it was a really interesting conversation for me. Um, Being from the business world, I hear a lot about carbon credits, but it was really interesting to hear about exactly how they work and what businesses are using them for, and especially how businesses are using them now in 2021 after this pandemic, or in the middle of it, I should say, and what, what she thinks the future holds for them. So a little bit about Melissa. Melissa is the Director of Client Engagement and Natural Capital Partners, a world-leading provider of carbon neutrality and climate finance, providing innovative solutions for positive impact on the world's natural capital, carbon, energy, water, biodiversity, and communities. Drawing upon 20 years experience and expertise working with some of the world's most forward-thinking companies, They create solutions that deliver immediate, measurable, and positive impacts for the environment, for society, and for business. In her role, Melissa is a truly trusted partner to her clients, bringing a wealth of knowledge and experience to ensure their programs are the highest quality and credibility and translated into clear, compelling communications to engage stakeholders. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Melissa, and I hope you do too. Welcome, Melissa. Good morning. So let's just start with the basics, uh, make sure we're all on the same page here. So what is carbon? Let's just start there. (laughs) Well, it's fundamental. Carbon is really just an element on the periodic table. But in the context of climate change, we're typically referring to greenhouse gas emissions, which include a variety of gases, but one of the largest is carbon dioxide. So in short form, we often refer to greenhouse gas emissions as carbon, as we're trying to reduce carbon emitted into the atmosphere. Okay, so it's just carbon dioxide is what we're normally talking about? Carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases. Okay, so all of them are kind of comprised in the same umbrella? We refer to it as CO2E, so carbon dioxide equivalents. So you can take the global warming potential of other gases like methane, which is 25 times as potent as CO2 as a greenhouse gas. And we can convert all of these other greenhouse gases into a CO2 equivalent. And so greenhouse gas emissions are typically reported in terms of tons or pounds of CO2E. Oh, okay. That makes sense to like translate it all into the same unit. Because yeah, you'd, you'd think that I've heard, yeah, methane is pretty potent and a couple of the other ones have different equivalencies. So, okay. That's interesting. Refrigerant. Some of the refrigerants are 10, 20,000 times the heating value of CO2. Okay, so yeah, that gets into my next question. Where do we find carbon? Well, carbon's everywhere. Carbon itself is not necessarily (laughs) a bad thing. Carbon makes up sugar. Carbon is an element in carbohydrates. Carbon is in trees. It's in our body. It's in the air. But the problem is that it's in the wrong places. And so carbon is increasing in the atmosphere And those concentrations are leading to global warming, which are causing all sorts of uh, havoc in our climate systems. Mm -hmm. So you say like carbon's in the wrong places. So where should it be? So a lot of the work that 
is happening is to keep carbon in the soil. Keep mm. So with new farming practices, which really conserve carbon, keep it in the soil, keep it in the roots, keep it in the plants. Certain types of farming practices, like excessive tilling, releases the carbon from the soil into the atmosphere. So practices like no-till, where you're not turning over the soil, um, can keep that, soil, that carbon trapped down in the soil. Um, carbon is in trees. Trees naturally take CO2 out of the air, convert it into sugars in the trees, and sequester it. Um, but we are deforesting the world at a very high rate, and all those trees that are being cut down and burned are causing more carbon to go into the atmosphere. Also burning of fossil fuels. So we, a lot of carbon is stored as coal or as fuels that are under the, under the earth or under the oceans. And by burning those fuels, coal, natural gas, others, um, all that carbon is being released into the atmosphere. Right. Yeah, I remember learning in my biology classes about the carbon cycle and learning that like there is there's a natural process for carbon and you know it goes through all of the the cycles and it it is naturally occurring but the problem is when humans get involved and we're um, putting it in places that it doesn't belong and putting it in the atmosphere is, is what's causing the break in the cycle and we also increase the speed of that cycle so we mm. we plant trees but then we cut them down for timber and so those trees aren't growing as large as they could. So in some of the improved forest management projects, one of the goals is to let those trees grow larger um, because they're sequestering more carbon and holding that for a longer period of time. Mm, okay. There are different types of carbon. Large, there's different scopes of carbon when you're talking about carbon emissions and um, like business carbon. So could you talk about the three scopes? Sure. So there was an initiative put in place in the last 20 years to define how you account for carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions from an organization like a company. Um, and so there, it's turned into the greenhouse gas protocol is what it's called. And there's defined as three scopes. Scope one are your direct emissions. And those are from sources that are owned or controlled by the company. So, for example, if you burn natural gas for heat for your facility, that's a direct emission. You are purchasing that gas, you're owning the system, the furnace or the boiler, which is converting that gas into CO2 emissions. And so you directly control that. If you have owned vehicles, if you have uh, forklifts or other kinds of trucks that are used at your facilities, the emissions from the fuel combustion there is also included. The second scope is for electricity. So those are indirect greenhouse gas emissions. You don't own the electricity generation facility, but it's your consumption of electricity that causes that generation facility to be running. So you report the emissions from electricity that you're purchasing for your facility. And then scope three is other indirect greenhouse gas emissions. Within scope three emissions, these are also indirect emissions. You do not have direct control. You don't own these sources, but that are happening because they are part of the course of running your business. A very common one is business travel. Your employees are getting on airplanes or you're getting on an airplane and flying and all those airplanes have emissions. You may be taking vehicles, um, hotel stays, all count within business travel. Employee commuting, so getting your employees back and forth to work and this year, 2020, obviously, we have increased emissions from employees working from home. Everybody at home 
generally has additional heating, cooling, lighting that is occurring above and beyond kind of the normal situation when people were typically going to their office. So many companies are now accounting for the employees working at home and the increase in emissions there. Wow, really? I hadn't heard that. Typically, there's so few people working at home that it's been a very minor emission source. But 2020, yeah. we really set the record on getting people at home. I think over 50% of the workforce was working from home, plus all of our school children. Um, so it makes sense to account for that source since it is such a large population of, of people's workforces. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, side note, and I'm not sure if you would be able to answer this, but do you think that the increase of like the heating and air conditioning costs of working from home outweigh the reduction in commuter CO2? That's a great question. It probably depends who at your home's in charge of your thermostat and also what climate zone you're in. I mean, yeah. when we all went into working at home, it was in the times, at least here in Wisconsin, where we weren't heavy into our heating time. It was, you know, April, May, June. We weren't heavy into our air conditioning time. So our energy use was at a probably its lowest point in that time of the year. Um, obviously, now we're making it through a full year. So it probably balances out people's average commute. Um, but I'd say from, from a company's standpoint, we're seeing dramatic reductions in their calendar year 2020 greenhouse gas footprint because there's so much less business travel. Uh, many of the oh, yeah. clients I work with are putting people on planes, and planes really have a tremendous impact on your greenhouse gas footprint. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be really interesting um, natural experiment here <laughs> to mm -hmm. figure out what is happening. Yes. So scope three is really just all these additional emission sources that you are required for the operation of your business. It also includes purchased goods and services. So you're looking at the impacts of all the raw materials or things you're purchasing for your business, whether it's computers and printers and paper, or it's the plastics to make your widget. Um, any capital goods, so if you're purchasing equipment, that is another emission category. Uh, fuel and other energy-related activities, for example, transmission and distribution losses. So when you, when electricity moves from a power plant to you, there's losses along the way. About 5% of that electricity is lost during the transmission of it. And so we, you can also take credit, take responsibility for those losses in your scope three emissions. Transportation. So if you have to move your goods uh, when you ship them from your facility to your customer or transportation of your inbound raw materials is also included. So there's quite a variety of emission sources that are in the scope three area. Wow. Use of your sold product. So if you make computers, you can report the emissions from the use of your computers as well. Yeah, that sounds really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, with greenhouse gas emissions accounting, the first time you go through it, it's really rough because you don't have access to all the data points that you need. But what we found is every year companies just get a little bit better. They get better at tracking maybe that business travel or they do a better survey of their employees to figure out the employee commute emissions. And so incrementally over time, those uh, accounting systems get better. Oh, that's a really good point. You don't really have to start with all of them, right? Are there no. um, like a couple of things that businesses normally start with of, you know, we're going to account for these things first and then every year we'll add another thing? 
typically scope one, scope two, so your direct emissions and your electricity, because if you're gonna have any sort of internal reduction goals, you're trying to reduce your energy use, reduce your electricity use, those are two ways to spot that. You have direct control over those two. Right. I'd say the next most common is reporting business travel. Um, that tends to be, especially for service-based companies that don't you know, make things that are not manufacturers, that is a large emission source. Anybody in professional services, consulting, things like that. Um, and that's a fairly easy one to track. Often people can work with their travel agents or their bookings department to pull the data on airplane legs and flight class and things like that. Mm -hmm. Employee commuting is also uh, a fairly straightforward one because it's really also a great opportunity to engage your employees and to get your employees thinking about what things they can do to reduce their own impacts. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to start with the stuff you have control over. Um, especially the electricity, that's that's pretty standard. Like you just, on your bill, you're able to see how many kilowatt hours you're using, how much it's costing you. And um, yeah, I feel like that would be an easy one to reduce. It's also a really easy emission source to switch to, to reduce because you can switch to renewables. Now, right. there's a whole spectrum of renewable electricity sources from on-site, so putting a solar panel on your roof, that's not within everybody's reach. You can go in with other business partners and build your own wind farm or build your own solar farm at a location outside of your facility and then own the renewableness of the electricity produced. You can also work with your local utility and opt in to a green power program. We Energies offers that here in Southeast Wisconsin for your own home. You can opt in to the um, 100% or even they have 50% renewables as well. So you can choose what level you want. So that's a really easy one. Um, and then lastly, you can purchase renewable energy credits. And that is basically a renewable facility, say a wind farm goes up in Kansas. They can feed the electricity into the local grid, but there's a system by which the environmental attribute, the renewableness of that electricity can be sold as a certificate. So you can purchase that renewable energy certificate, it's called a REC, and apply that to your electricity consumption. So you can buy one megawatt hour renewable energy credit and apply that to one megawatt hour of your own electricity consumption. And that legal, it gives you legal title to make the claim of renewable electricity. And that's a super easy, straightforward, very economical way to reduce scope two emissions and take your electricity to 100% renewable. A rack is less than, generally about less than $2 a megawatt hour. And you don't, you're not signing up for any long-term commitments. You can purchase as many recs as you want every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great overview. So yeah, especially for electricity, you want to first reduce what you can, make yourself as efficient as possible um, because, you know, not using the energy in the first place is better. But then the second option is doing like on-site solar or even off-site solar, like you were saying, um, where you're directly, you know, building the solar or wind or have direct control over that. But then, yeah, we've got these these crediting mechanisms, the RECs. That was the next thing I wanted to ask you about, just to make sure I have this right. So you're essentially paying for renewable energy to go up somewhere else in the country. Is that right? Exactly. And every country around the world, many countries around the world have renewable energy certificate type systems. So even if you're a multinational, you've got locations 
in France and in China and in India and Australia, there are systems in place where you can purchase the REC equivalent in all those countries. So you, you can take your global electricity footprint to 100% renewable. Mm. That's really interesting because that doesn't really require any major change on your part as a company, but you're essentially like investing in the electricity grid to go greener, right? Exactly. Hmm. And electricity yeah. is an area where the cost of renewables has come down significantly in the last you know, 10 years. And so as we're trying to drive out carbon emissions, electricity has been an area where we're seeing it to be pretty easy and straightforward. And so that's leading to a movement to electrify so many other types of things, because it's been really difficult to get to low carbon thermal fuels. How do you replace natural gas? How do you replace gasoline? How do you replace diesel? How do you replace all these generators that rely on fossil fuels? Incredibly hard getting rid of those scope one emissions. But electricity is much more straightforward. And so that's why we're seeing electrification of cars. We're seeing electrification of all kinds of vehicles, maybe that you have at your facility, moving from propane uh, lift trucks to electric lift trucks, uh, moving even there's a movement around kitchens, getting rid of natural gas in your for your cooktops and your stoves and your your gas dryer and moving all that to electric oh, wow. because it's so much easier to run those on renewable electricity than to find renewable sources of gas. I've been hearing a lot about that too of the electrify everything because it's yeah, like you said, it's easier to make the electricity zero carbon than anything else. Right. So, okay. So we've got renewable energy credits. What about carbon credits? What are those? So that's a perfect segue because for all of those emissions that you as an organization or an individual cannot reduce through moving to energy efficiency or moving to renewables, the remainder of your emissions, you can offset. And there's a mechanism that's been created in the last 20 years in order to create verified emission reductions. It was built out of the Kyoto Protocol Agreement, that um, international global agreement where developed nations were going to contribute financial support to projects in developing countries to fund projects that reduce, avoid, or remove carbon emissions. So for an example, many people around the world, there's still over 2 billion people in the world that cook over an open fire in their homes every single day. They don't have access to any sort of stove. And so they are going out, cutting down wood, burning that wood to cook their food. Obviously, there are multiple issues there. Deforestation, you're removing the, those trees and the ability of those trees to sequester carbon and pull it out of the atmosphere. And then secondly, you're burning that wood, which is resulting in carbon dioxide emissions as well. So it's twofold. So by installing clean cook stoves in people's homes, you can both reduce deforestation. Some of these cook stoves still use wood, but they use much less wood and it's a much more efficient cooking system so they can produce more heat with less wood and a better cooking system too. So by me measuring the amount of wood that is not being harvested and measuring the reduced wood that is being burned for cooking with these clean cook stoves, you can all of a sudden determine how many greenhouse gas emissions have been avoided by installing a clean cook stove. 
there's a, now a whole system for doing the calculations, doing determining the methodology for what are the factors you need to look at for this clean cook stove. You need to you need to monitor these homes, make sure they're using their stoves. You need to measure how much wood they're actually using with this clean cook stove, as opposed to how much wood they were using previously. Um, there's a whole process for monitoring the implementation and actual use of these stoves to determine the math of how much greenhouse gas emissions have been avoided or reduced through the use of these stoves. Then there's a verification process that will go out and check the monitoring reports and ensure that these projects were conducted in accordance with methodologies developed by carbon standards. And then you can issue a carbon credit. And a carbon credit is issued in terms of one ton of CO2 equivalent. And these tons are then put onto a registry which then organizations can purchase those credits and apply them to their footprint. There's thousands of different types of carbon projects around the world. Um, typically, as I've said, there's avoidance projects, there's protection of forests, avoiding forests from being converted to agricultural land or deforestation, projects protecting grasslands from being converted to agriculture, restoration of coastal mangroves, which are really great at both sequestering carbon as well as protecting coastlines from storm surges. You can install renewable energy systems, helping especially the developing world who doesn't have electricity move to distributed solar panels on their house to provide lighting. Energy efficiency projects, um, as well as removal projects like tree planting, reforesting areas that have been where the trees have been cut down and also engineered solutions like direct air capture, where you're literally trying to pull the CO2 out of the air and store it in an engineered solution, like pumping it into the ground um, or storing it in things like concrete. Wow, that sounds super complicated. All of that measuring and data, that's, that's an incredible system. Well, what it does, though, is it gives credibility and rigor to these claims. Mm -hmm. Right. I've been in sustainability for over 20 years, and in my early days, we used to just take credit for, you know, our company owned a forest, and well, we know every tree generally in its lifetime sequesters about a ton of CO2, and so we would do the math, how many trees, how many acres of forest, and we would say, oh, our forest, you know, has helped us avoid, let's just say a thousand tons of greenhouse gas emissions, uh -huh. but the reality was nobody was monitoring that forest. Nobody was determining whether maybe a pest came in and half the trees died and never made it to full maturity. Maybe somebody went in and did illegal logging and pulled out a bunch of trees. Now those trees are no longer sequestering carbon. Nobody looked at the baseline. What was going to happen to that patch of forest under normal circumstances? Was it going to just remain a forest or was it under pressure to be deforested? Was it under pressure to be converted to another use where those trees were very likely to be cut down? So the carbon standards give immense amount of credibility to the claims you make that that car ton of carbon has actually been happened because um, this situation went above and beyond business as usual. It was not required mm -hmm. by the law to protect that forest. It was not normal practice to protect that forest. Um, those emission reductions are real. They're permanent. We're, we have legal title to them. That's actually our forest that we own and not trying to take credit for someone else's forest. So there's a very robust system because at the end of the day, we are trying to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. And so we need very good accounting. We need to know who 
is emitting these greenhouse gases and who is trying to reduce them. And if we all start taking credit for the same projects and we're all reporting that we're reducing our emissions, but it's actually coming from the same source, we're not going to move the needle on pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Right. Yeah. You don't want to be double dipping. Yeah. Okay. So similar to how the REC works, when you're buying a carbon credit, you're essentially also paying for somebody else to reduce their emissions, right? Exactly. And because this system was created through off the heels of the Kyoto Protocol, one of the things that is really important is that those of us that live in the developed world are the ones that are generally, we've caused the most greenhouse gas emissions that is leading to climate change. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of resources at our disposal to avoid the impacts of climate change. The challenge is the people in the developing world are least responsible. Many of them, as I mentioned, they don't have, you don't have electricity. You're cooking over a very simple stove. You don't have a car. You're not getting on airplanes. They're not contributing to this massive problem of excess carbon emissions in the atmosphere. And they don't have the resources. They're most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Many of these communities are um, agriculture-based communities. And as the temperatures rise, the types of crops they can grow is shifting. They can no longer mm-hmm. grow the same things at the same elevation because the temperatures have now increased. Or the, the droughts are lasting longer. What Rainstorms are coming more aggressively. Just the intensity of the weather patterns is really shifting their ability to meet their basic needs. Or maybe they live on the coast and now sea level is rising and they're just being impacted by storm after storm after storm. So the idea is that many of these projects should be happening in the developing world because they're least able to invest in projects that will both move them to a low carbon economy and provide resiliency to live in a world with higher temperature. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's also why this is kind of the last step on a company's journey or personal journey. If you're doing this for personal use, you want to, because we have the means to reduce our own carbon, the first step is to actually like reduce what we have. And so what's left over, then we can purchase carbon credits for. So I work at Natural Capital Partners and we work with clients that have aggressive climate goals and they're doing the work to do their own internal reductions, but they mm-hmm. don't they realize we can't wait until they reduce till the bare, you know, until they have the the least possible emissions from their facilities. They want to take climate action now. We have 10 years to move the needle on keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial times. And if we wait till 2030, 2040, 2050 to start investing in carbon credits and projects which reduce green or avoid or sequester greenhouse gas emissions, it's going to be too late. We need to take Mm -hmm. action now. And so there's many companies are making commitments to carbon neutrality. And while they're continuing to make their internal reductions, they are purchasing carbon credits to take their footprint to zero. And this is an increasing trend. So you can, so while you're working on reducing your emissions, you can also offset the remainder emissions right now. And we're, we did our research the last two years looking at the global Fortune 500 companies to see which had commitments to carbon neutrality, commitments to 100% renewable electricity, commitments to science-based targets. And we saw in 2019, about 25% of those companies had a commitment to carbon neutrality. Last year, we saw 30%. 
So this is no longer an issue that's just reserved for the super greeny companies. This is mainstream. This is global Fortune 500 that is taking action today. And that's trickling down to all the suppliers to those global Fortune 500 companies, companies, large, small individuals. There are many companies who have already taken leadership in carbon neutrality. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting to see that it's actually growing um, in mainstream business as well. So do you see carbon credits as more of a stopgap measure of, okay, we need to take action now. So we're going to do this and continue working and then eventually phase out the carbon credits? Or do you see it as a long-term solution? At the end of the day, we can make as many reductions as we want to our carbon footprint, but we'll never get to zero. We're always going to have some emissions. Um, And so what are you going to do with that residual? And so carbon credits are an important part to play for a variety of reasons. One is to address your unmitigated emissions. And secondly, it's also to help drive the rest of the world to this low carbon economy. Helping communities with more sustainable livelihoods um, is going to help all of us around the planet. You work at Natural Capital Partners who deal directly with carbon credits and working with businesses to provide the carbon credits to them and talking them through the process. How have you seen this trend of carbon credits um, in the last couple of years and specifically last year in 2020 with COVID? I joined Natural Capital Partners in 2018 and the market had been chugging along. There were quite a few companies committed to carbon neutrality. They were purchasing carbon credits um, to negate their footprints. And 2019, we started to see an uptick. There was much more action from the corporate sector and buying carbon credits. 2020, we were very excited to have a great year. A lot of companies had targets that were set to um, be be hit in 2020. And when COVID hit, we were really nervous. We weren't sure what our customer base was going to do. The market tanked in March, and we were fearful that corporate budgets were going to evaporate to support their carbon neutrality programs. But what we saw was almost the opposite. Uh, I'd say we had pretty much no clients uh, rescind their commitments to carbon neutrality. In fact, we saw an increased number of inbound requests of companies wanting to make more aggressive goals on climate, wow. make more aggressive commitments to climate action, and expand expand their scope. Um, I think the timing, it probably all just started to come together in that the pandemic showed people what a global issue could look like, and climate mm-hmm. change is a global issue. And so we saw that COVID is hitting nations rich and poor, hitting, you know, everybody, not quite the same, but it's, it's, a, it's impacting everyone. And climate change is the same thing. And so the companies, I feel like the corporate sector is seeing the parallels between these two global problems and realizing that the corporate sector needs to step up to tackle both of these. And, and combined with that, there's this perception that if you want to attract and retain millennials in your workforce, you need to have a corporate ethic around environmental and social responsibility. And so taking action for your emissions as one part of your sustainability strategy, you know, is a way to keep your employees engaged, um, demonstrate your leadership. And so we just saw 2020 as turned into a great year and 2021 is gearing up to be even more active. The carbon markets have finally 
have finally taken hold. Um, for many years, these projects were selling their credits you know, at a very low price because there just weren't enough buyers. And we saw that change last year. Some of these projects, they issue credits only every two to five years because you have to go through that monitoring and verification cycle. It's not an mm -hmm. annual thing. It, it happens over the course of maybe, you know, two to five years. And some of those projects were finally selling out of their credits. And that's a good thing for these projects because then they could start to charge a little bit more for the carbon credits, which is essential for these projects to be sustainable. They can't survive if they're only receiving a dollar per ton of CO2 emission reductions. A cook stove project really needs to be earning $10 a ton um, in order to make these projects viable and to enable them to continue the activities they're doing on the ground. We've also mm. seen a shift in that there's a real emphasis on nature-based solutions. Um, we know from research that to achieve the emission reductions that we need to, to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, nature can provide 30% of the solutions to keep us there. And so there's been a real investment in tr projects which both conserve forests, reforest forests, um, things where we're leveraging the power of nature to both remove, avoid, or sequester carbon. And so those projects have been doing really well. Mm. That's really exciting to hear that there's been a, a resurgence of investment in these things and that there might be so much resurgence that it's going to cause the price to go up. <laughs> I mean, that's that's great news for companies who are already in the thick of this and already thinking about it because getting in now and early while it's cheap is beneficial for them. <laughs> yeah, and we're seeing a lot of clients too that want to they want to try to create their own carbon project um, because with an issue that they care about or in a geography that's relevant for their employees or their customers. Um, yeah, is that possible to create your own credit? You can create definitely create your own project. New projects are will definitely be coming online in the next couple of years because finally demand is selling out the credits from the existing projects, so we need to expand. Um, wow. Many of the project developers from the existing projects can now go out and create new projects in different regions. Um, we've had a lot of success with a peatland conservation project in Indonesia, where they've conserved this peatland forest and that was slated to be converted to palm oil plantations. Um, peatland is an incredibly carbon-dense ecosystem. And when you, you drain the peatlands and slash and burn it in order to farm palm oil trees, um, incredible greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the project partner there has a new project in Mexico where they are going to restore mangroves along the coastlines um, and do a lot of community uh, livelihood engagement. So we're seeing people that have done successful projects in one part of the world create new projects in other areas. Hmm. Nice. Nice. Now I heard you say um, carbon neutrality. Could you clarify when, so when we're looking at a business and their, their goals for, you know, the next 10, 20 years, when they say carbon neutrality, I've also seen net zero carbon. Um, what do those phrases specifically mean? So carbon neutrality is when you've measured your greenhouse gas footprint and you have then offset what is remaining. So if your greenhouse gas footprint is 10,000 tons, um, 
you've reduced that because you've invested in renewable energy, you've done energy efficiency, you know, maybe last year or 10 years ago, it was 15,000 tons. Whatever those residual emissions are, that 10,000, you can purchase carbon credits, um, 10,000 carbon credits to match your 10,000 ton carbon footprint. And that gives you the right to call that carbon neutral. At National okay. Capital Partners, we oversee the carbon neutral protocol and it defines which emission sources you need to report and then offset in order to make a claim of carbon neutrality. So for a company, um, we believe that it's not just scope one and scope two emissions, but there's a handful of scope three emissions you should also account for, such as waste, business travel, teleworkers now, uh, tr those transmission and distribution losses. Um, and that if you want to make a transparent claim of carbon neutrality, you need to follow a standard like the carbon neutral protocol. Okay. And is that the same thing as a net zero uh, claim? So net zero is a little different in that, and the, the, the definitions are still being worked out on net zero. Um, it's being led by the <laughs> science-based target initiative. But right now the proposal is that as a company is reducing their internal emissions, say from 2020 to 2030, you can take your footprint to zero through the use of carbon credits. But once you get to that net zero point, that commitment that you've made, any residual emissions you have at that point, you can only offset that with, pro with projects that are removing carbon from the atmosphere. So they're changing kind of, they're refining the definition of the types of carbon offsets that can be applied to your footprint and saying that by 2030, the, you may only use carbon credits from projects such as tree plantings, reforestation, direct air capture, projects that don't avoid carbon or reduce carbon emissions, but that su simply sequester it. So a subset mm -hmm. of all the carbon credits. Okay. All right. So net zero is a little bit more stringent, but it's being worked on. <laughs> it's being worked on. Yeah, okay. they, I think that the, the intention is great. I think one of the, the challenges I see in that strategy is that carbon credits offer so many co-benefits too. It's not just about reducing or removing that one ton of CO2. These projects have intense community benefits. When you're doing a forest protection project, you're not just putting up a fence around a forest in Brazil and saying nobody can go in and cut down these trees. The reason people cut down trees is because they need money. Mm -hmm. So these projects are really all about community development. How do you get sustainable livelihoods for the people that live in and around this forest so that they don't have pressures to cut down the trees? How do you help them create new businesses? Some of these areas have set up beekeeping or sustainable agriculture, helping them grow fruit and nut trees or other crops that they can then sell and make businesses out of. Um, some of them, the one in Indonesia, they actually provide water filters and healthcare to people because they found that when people needed healthcare, they'd go cut down a tree in order to have money to pay for healthcare. Mm. So if you can, you can reduce the pressure on deforestation by giving people alternative livelihoods. And so the, the challenge is that if we simply focus on the carbon in the atmosphere, we miss all the people. And it's, we're, we'll never get to our goals if we don't forget, if we forget that it's really about people's, people's livelihoods. And we need to help people move to this low carbon economy to live more sustainable, more robust lifestyles. 
have economic opportunities that don't destroy the planet, but actually can support it. Yeah, that is a great point. And I think we miss that a lot, especially in the business sector. When I hear about carbon um, and talking about carbon at work and with uh, colleagues and things like that, we totally miss the people part where, you know, carbon is being released for a reason. I mean, a lot of these people, they need, yeah, they need the wood to be able to cook their food. So how do we help and invest in the future of their lives and the community and not just um, pay for something that's not going to help. But on the other hand, we've already released so much carbon into the atmosphere that that sequestration is also important in order to meet the 1.5 degree goal. We're not going to get there by just uh, reducing what we have now. We need to actually like backtrack a little bit and sequester what we've released. So there's definitely a balance in all of these, right? You can't also you also can't just reduce your emissions enough. It's a balancing act. All right. So we we obviously there it is hugely important to remove carbon out of the atmosphere. And we've looked at potential solutions that are already in existence to do that. And we believe what you can reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere about 21 gigatons can be removed by projects like sustainable agriculture, engineered removals, natural climate solutions, reforestation. The problem is that we are continuing to emit immense amount of emissions to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a diagram of a bathtub. The faucet is going full force. 55 gigatons are annual greenhouse gas emissions. These removal projects can only pull out 21. So the drain on our bathtub is half the size of our faucet. So the bathtub is continuing to fill up. The concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is continuing to go up. So we really, it is vital that we invest in projects that reduce and avoid emissions. 13 gigatons could be achieved, reductions could be achieved purely with renewable energy. Four gigatons could be achieved through refrigerant management. We talked earlier about those uh, refrigerant gases are 10 to 20,000 times as potent as carbon dioxide. Two gigatons could be reduced by improved cook stoves, um, two gigatons from natural climate solutions. So there's a lot of strategies in existence today to remove, to avoid those emissions in combined with projects that will pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. So from our philosophy, our viewpoint, we need all the solutions. We can't just isolate to only removals. And mm-hmm. a really great resource if you want to see the different types of carbon projects and where we can have the most impact is going to Project Drawdown. It's a project of Paul Hawken, and they've researched all these different solutions and then looked at what's the cost and what's the potential impact on on climate change. So for example, onshore wind turbines, utility-scale solar PV are really important. But also they found reducing food waste and moving to plant-rich diets are number three and four in the list of solutions. Number five is health and education. And that's around educating girls because we found that the longer girls are in school, they tend to have kids later in life and have fewer kids. And then they tend to keep their families healthier as well. 
obviously population, um, every person on the planet has an impact on the climate. So educating girls is really a critical issue as well as family planning. So Project Drawdown has a great table of all these different types of solutions to get us faster and quicker and the most um, targeted ones towards the reductions we need to achieve globally. That Yeah, that's great info. And I'll definitely share the Project Drawdown um, list and things with our listeners. And I also love the image that you gave us of the bathtub. I think that really helps a lot to fake to to like picture, you've got the faucet of everything coming in, but we need to make the drain wider <laughs> in order so it doesn't, our bathtub doesn't fill up. I think that's a great visual. I know I could talk about carbon forever, um, and we'll do a couple of other episodes about carbon, specifically how individuals can reduce their carbon footprints. But I wanted to wrap up by asking you, where do you see this trend for carbon in business going for the next five years? This is increasing. Not only are the corporate sector is doing all of this work voluntarily in the United States, we are, except for California, we don't have any regulation on greenhouse gas emissions today. And so corporates are, are taking these efforts because they see that the impacts of climate change are going to impact their business. And so they need to take efforts in order to both from a risk mitigation perspective, as well as a, a business growth and opportunity perspective. I think this is going to continue to grow because the investor community is asking companies to report on their greenhouse gas emissions. There's an initiative called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, asking companies to put their carbon footprint information in their financial disclosures. So not just in wow. a sustainability report, but putting it in those that are officially filed so that investors can really see the potential risks a business faces with the impacts of climate change and making that information much more transparent. So I think there's a lot of pressures both from the investor community. I think, you know, we'll see regulation eventually in the U.S., but right now it's not being driven by U.S. regulation. Um, I think this is a way to continue to, I see this initiative growing for sure. Yeah. That's that's really heartening to hear, especially since it's voluntary, but we're also starting to see the investor world look at this a lot a lot more and the public companies are being looked at to provide their carbon emission data in their investing opportunities. Well, yeah, businesses too are looking at now that they've tackled their scope one emissions, they know what their electricity use is, they're they're getting better at the accounting side of it. And a natural progression is then to look at what am I purchasing? <laughs> so mm -hmm. if I'm going to purchase a laptop, you know, 10,000 laptops for my big company, don't I want to choose a laptop that is both, you know, the most environmentally sustainable, has the least amount of energy use? So I think there's also, there's a shift towards procurement practices where purchasing decisions are being made on sustainability attributes, both choosing business partners that have sustainability commitments and choosing products that have a lower carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I see the, what, what we actually started this episode with talking about you, you start with the easy stuff and you eventually add more and more into your carbon footprint. So that's really exciting to hear that more companies are starting to add more layers to that and looking more at their scope three emissions. Oh, this has been really fascinating. Um, so thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me today. 
It's been really fun, and I look forward to seeing more climate action, especially here in Waukesha County and Wisconsin. Yeah, same. <laughs> Make sure to check out Greencast on Facebook, where we post the most up-to-date information, release episodes, provide a lot more resources about things you heard on the show, and have conversations about episodes and sustainability in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and beyond. Also, if you're interested in the Waukesha County Green Team, please check out our website and Facebook page and come to one of our board meetings. They're always open to the public. Greencast is produced through the Waukesha County Green Team by Alec Lapoidovin and Laura Lauchs, with help from Stacey Balsley. Our theme music is by Dan Krill and Emma Kopel. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sustainability starts with all of us. <laughs>